and we're live with Be Green with Amy. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Be Green with Amy. I'm Amy. In 2012, my hubby Rick and I lost over 130 pounds by adopting a plant-strong diet. And since then, I've been coaching people to join me in achieving their plant-based lifestyle goals of weight loss and improved health. <laughs> Please post your questions for our guests. You could post comments. Tell us where you're from. You could even type in my tagline, be strong, be well, and be green. Just has voice. Let's welcome our guest. Vanessa Mendez, MD, is a double board certified gastroenterologist and internist. Her goal is to get to the root cause of an ailment and provide lasting relief. Please click like and help Be Green with Amy. Welcome, Dr. Vanessa Mendez. Greetings and welcome, Dr. Menendez. Thank Everybody, you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. Yes, I am so happy that you're here because the topic that you are going to help us take a closer look at today is so important to us. And being that you're an internist and a gastroenterologist, you are so familiar with so many of the different digestive issues and troubles that people face. And it seems to be so prevalent, especially for people who may be trying to adopt a plant-based lifestyle and they may be struggling because their body hasn't adjusted and maybe they give up and they shouldn't. So you're going to really help us to learn a lot about this. And I think that we could probably go on for maybe five hours and still not cover everything. So I'm going to hope that we'll just be able to answer questions and we'll just see what we can do to get some of this information out to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, when it comes to digestive health, there's just so many myths and so many so many fads out there that people are confused by. And the fact is that digestive issues affect um, a large population, you know, a large percentage of the US population, and even international, um, it's more common, uh, digestive disorders are, you know, more common in more in westernized um, uh, countries, and um, especially things like IBS, irritable bowel, IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, fatty liver, and um, a lot of things that can be um, that can be uh, changed with lifestyle, or it can even be prevented, actually. Um, and there's just, you know, I think one of the biggest disservice that we do to patients is just um, the the media is just constantly marketing tools, bombarding them with just so much misinformation. And at the end of the day, you know, patients are seeking relief from their symptoms. They're seeking to, they're seeking help. They're seeking to be heard and um, acknowledged and understood and for people to try to help them. And I think that we're limited in, in many ways, both in traditional medicine, but also um, in more holistic practices. So my approach is an integrative approach. I take evidence-based modalities from everything from Western, Eastern practices, and I incorporate them into my practice to give patients, you know, um, the answers that they're looking for, looking for that root cause of their illnesses, and also lasting strategies that are going to give them, you know, um, uh, relief and long-lasting digestive health. Well, that's wonderful. I always think it's so funny how if you were watching commercialized television, you'll see a fast food restaurant commercial. And then right after that, you'll see some kind of a digestive over-the-counter drug or prescription medication that will <laughs> that will Absolutely. try to relieve the symptoms, not the cause of those digestive problems that were caused by the food that they were just advertising prior to. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's so ironic. Um, and I think that in traditional medicine, we're just not taught to um, view the person as a whole, you know, we're taught to kind of dissect specific um, organs and just hyper focus on them, but also um, dissect and just focus on specific illnesses um, with a focus on the treatment, but not really getting to that root cause, you know, and um and, and the fact is that we have to view the patient as a whole, head to toe. More than ever, we know that uh, gut health and especially the gut microbiome is um, related and um, in constant communication with the rest of the body. And um, microbiome imbalances have been associated with a whole host of disorders, uh, including digest not only digestive disorders but uh, things like Parkinson's disease and anxiety and depression and dementia and cardiovascular disorders and the list goes on and on so more than ever I think we're seeing that um, a lot of not only the root causes of illnesses um, so maybe the starting point for a lot of illnesses um, may be in the gut uh, definitely autoimmune disorders are associated with microbiome imbalances because 70 to 80 percent of our immune system is actually in our gut um, so the gut microbiome is in constant communication with um, our immune system so it's no surprise that um, microbiome imbalances have been associated with autoimmune disorders. And even now in the era of COVID, we've, we have a lot of data to suggest that microbiome imbalances, data that not just suggests shows that microbiome imbalances um, is linked to worsened outcomes from COVID. So the this there's never been a more exciting time to be in my field. Um, um, we didn't get trained in the gut microbiome because at the time of training, it was a very emerging field. Really, the field has exploded in the last 10 years. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to delve into that and clarify myths for you guys and and um, and answer your questions. Wonderful. Well, I think it's fun. I, a new format that I've had recently on the show is to engage our viewers and listeners and ask them some true or false questions. So you can answer in your mind or you can type in your guess and it's just true or false. So just type it in and, and let's just see. And then Dr. Mendez will answer those questions. So we're going to start off with our true or false questions. We just have a few of them. And so type in your answer, true or false. So the first one is, you should take probiotics after you have finished taking a prescription of antibiotics. True or false? So while you guys are thinking about that and typing in your answer, we're going to have Dr. Mendez answer that question. Okay, you want me to answer right now? Yes, please. Okay, so um, so the probiotic uh, topic is very controversial. Um, <clears throat> we have um, a lot of studies suggesting that um, we are just not there yet when it comes to the science of the gut microbiome. Each of us has a completely unique gut microbiome. It's, it's our own individual fingerprint. No two people's microbiome um, is alike. Um, and um, not only that, our microbiome is constantly changing in small ways and interacting with our environment, with the food we're eating, with um, if we're taking supplements or medications, with environmental toxins. Um, it's changing as we, you know, sleep, exercise. Um, it's constantly in flux, minor, minor um, changes, but still changing um, constantly. So um, when it comes to probiotics, the 
supplement industry is not FDA regulated. So when we talk about now, you know, more than ever, I think we're all a little bit more aware about the FDA regulations and the process that it takes to approve things. Um, and I think it, this is a good time for us to be, uh, practice um, and be more wise, uh, uh, exercise more wisdom when it comes to um, what we put in our body. And that um, means supplements as well. So supplement industry is not FDA regulated. The FDA um, kind of uh, tell, tells individual companies to regulate themselves. And yes, some companies are third-party tested and there are some certifications that where you can meet higher quality um, supplements, um, have the stand for higher quality supplements. Um, but at the end, this it hasn't been tested on a large scale on humans. So um, what that means that there's no, that's no different from probiotics. So a lot of the studies that we have for, from probiotics are testing stool, but not the best way to test the stool. Um, and what the microbes that we shed in our stool, when we test microbiome changes in the stool, that may not represent what's actually happening inside the colon, inside the large bowel, which is where our gut microbiome resides. So the studies are not the best. Um, our GI guidelines uh, last year came out with position statements regarding uh, probiotics, and they recommend probiotics um, uh, in three circumstances. Um, and only one of it is pertinent to most people. So the, let's start with the other two. The first one is in premature babies, um, preterm or, um, or small babies, um, um, we recommend probiotics for the prevention of necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a specific um, condition that babies can get if they're low birth weight or premature. So uh, the second um, would be in patients who um, have a condition called pouchitis. And these are patients with inflammatory bowel disease who have had surgery and develop chronic inflammation from their pouch. Um, the condition, again, is called pouchitis. Then we recommend probiotics in that, in that scenario. And then, so those two are not pertinent to most people. Then the one that is pertinent to most people is in exactly the situation where you talked about antibiotics. So what the guidelines say is that in patients who are at high risk of contracting C. difficile infection, Clostridioides difficile infection, so mouthful, um, then we recommend uh, probiotics for the prevention of, of that infection. These patients is not the regular population. These patients are usually hospitalized or nursing home or long-term care, um, you know, patients, and or they have a lot of other comorbidities that put them at high risk for contracting this infection. For the rest of the population, they say, you know, talk to your gastroenterologist, decide if this is beneficial for you, but it's a conditional. So not everybody who's taking antibiotics um, uh, would benefit from a probiotic supplement. And again, the probiotics out in the market, they're not medical grade. They actually may be digested by digestive enzymes in our in our stomach and may not even ever reach the colon. So it's just not wise to mess up, mess with our gut microbiome when we don't have enough data to show that it may be beneficial. I personally have patients who have tried probiotics over the counter, of course, and then they've developed worsened uh, digestive issues. So I 
uh, urge everybody to be very wise, be a wise consumer, just like we're uh, wise consumers of things, controversial things now, like vaccinations and stuff like that. We have to be wise consumers of supplements, you know, we have to be wise consumers of the food we put in our body and everything that we um, put dollars into that we purchase. So definitely supplements um, is something that we need to be very careful with and really discuss um, and, and learn from our, our, you know, our doctors that have been trained to really weigh the benefits and, and the cons for you um, and, and the negative, possible negative effects. Well, that so, was so the answer is conditional. It depends. <laughs> right. And that's what a true doctor is supposed to do, not just give a straight answer. They have to consider all the different options there. Okay, let's go with our next question. Get ready, guys. Here's the R, true or false. If you have a food intolerance, you should avoid that food. True or false? And Dr. Mendez is going to answer that. Yeah. So this is another big um, controversial area in the GI world, the digestive disease world. Um, so we have um, we have different styles of practices across uh, healthcare. Um, and um, so let's talk about where food intolerances come from. So food intolerances is a sim is a food intolerance is a symptom of something possibly uh, wrong with your digestive system. So, uh, for example, let's talk about lactose intolerance. So lactose intolerance is prevalent in up to seventy percent of our populations. Very common. Why? Because we don't need lactose after we wean from mother's milk, right? So that is a known um, you know deficiency that we develop that most of us will develop, and that's perfectly fine, right? We don't need the lactose, so we lose the ability to digest it. Um, and that's normal. So don't try, for me, my personal opinion is don't try to put lactose in your body if your body has no need for it. Now, when it comes to other food intolerances, especially when it comes to health food intolerances, things like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, that's a different story because these are foods that have been shown Study after study, hundreds, thousands of studies have shown that fruits and vegetables are the healthiest uh, foods in our planet, that plant-based foods are the healthiest foods uh, for, for our health. Um, but more so than ever, we have seen that they are the healthiest foods for the gut microbiome. And again, linking it back to the gut microbiome now is linked to all these disorders, protection of disease. Um, so our gut microbiome can help us or it can hurt us. So um, how does our micro, uh, microbiome thrive? Our microbiome really thrives with fiber. Um, in fact, uh, fiber is, for the most part, only digested by our gut microbiome. Um, we as humans don't have the ability to digest fiber, so we evolved to allow our microbiome to digest all these fiber-rich foods. And it makes sense because when we were, you know, when we were evolving, we're still evolving, but when we were starting out. Um, we did not, we, um, our, our diet changed with the seasons, our diet changed with our location. So it was just not, um, it was not energy efficient for our, our genetic code, our human genetic code, which is actually very limited compared to the gut, gut microbiome code, genetic code, they have way more genes than we do. Um, there's a hundred trillion microbes in our gut that, can encode a lot more 
than we can. So as we were evolving early on, our diet was constantly changing. So we evolved to allow our gut microbiome to do that job for us. And it makes sense because our gut microbiome actually um, in one day, in 24 hours, we have 50 new generations of gut microbes. You take a normal bacteria like E. coli, which is present in our gut, and um, their their replication time is uh, every 20 minutes. So in a day, we have 50 new generations of this bacteria. Um, so our gut microbiome was able to change rapidly and was able to encode for whatever uh, seasonal or terrain uh, variation was our diet, you know, at that time. Um, so why do we why are we talking about this? Because the original question was food intolerances, right? Well, we said that fiber um, is mostly digested by our gut microbiome. So when somebody tells me I have a food intolerance to any of these plant-based foods, I can pretty certainly tell you that you have a gut microbiome imbalance. So um, you are either deficient in the crucial um, species that digest that specific fiber-rich food, or you have more of the inflammatory microbes uh, that are getting in the way of the beneficial ones that you do have there uh, doing their job. So um, food intolerances, my approach is you really have to get to the root cause of your issue. Um, it could be a medication that's causing your issue. It could be another supplement that's causing your issue. It could be chronic stress that's causing your microbiome imbalances. It could be you have a anatomical uh, underlying digestive issue, things like inflammatory bowel disease. We know it causes ulcer ulcerations throughout the bowel and it disrupts our digestion. So getting to that root cause and then working from there, solving or helping to heal the root cause. And then... Um, Introduce, reintroducing this food in a way, uh, in a time, one, that you're on your way to healing, um, and in a way that um, you're dosing it very small, maybe a little teaspoon uh, at, at first. I have patients that, for example, they can't tolerate oats. And what do we do? We start with oat water, just the water from oats. And why the water from oats has a lot of prebiotics. It's already feeding the gut microbiome. We don't feed these microbes. So in food restrictions, so the question was, should we restrict this food? Should we avoid it? Well, when you avoid the food, you're actually worsening the issue because then you're not feeding the crucial species that are responsible for digesting this food. So what happens to them? They die off. Do they die off forever? No, they don't die off forever because they encode memory and, and genetic material in there. Um, they can resist being wiped out. So that's good for us because if we reintroduce the food, but in small amounts, increasingly bigger, then we can feed them. Um, they can thrive again eventually. Um, but it has to be with somebody who's knowledgeable on this. And the truth is most people are not either because, you know, um, they don't know about nutrition. Um, ideally, it would be a pair of a gastroenterologist who really, you know, has uh, kept up with the data on the gut microbiome and with a registered dietitian that specializes in digestive illnesses. Um, there's not that many pairings of these. Um, I, I'm part of a team that works like this, but there's not a lot of these pairings. So then the most common thing that patients are told is that avoid the food. 
or they'll do these food intolerance tests that are not validated by any scientific data. Um, and it tells them, okay, you are intolerant to lettuce and nuts, and you're intolerant to tomatoes and basically all plant-based foods. Well, these food intolerances are not validated. We have no data right now that says that they actually test for what they're supposed to test. They're IgG testing, meaning if you had lettuce yesterday, it's gonna be positive. Does that mean that you're intolerant to lettuce? No, that's ridiculous. So they're, they're, they're scam, unfortunately. And if you Google this right now, there's a hundred companies selling them and patients, most of my patients come to me having spent hundreds uh, of dollars on these tests. And ultimately they actually end up spending thousands of dollars because then they're told, then you have to take the supplement to fix this and you have to do this to fix that. None of it science-based. Um, so it's really, really unfortunate, but food intolerances can be overcome. The answer is not to restrict these foods forever. Get to the root cause of what's causing your food intolerance and then work with somebody that's going to help you achieve that lasting healing so that you can thrive and you can, um, you know, have, uh, enjoy a whole host of uh, plant-based foods and feel like you're really, you're, 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 um, not restricting, you know, um, that you're really living uh, to the fullest. That's really great information. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that think that they have these food intolerances and their life is definitely being affected by it. And having somebody like you could really change their world and you could help them design their lifestyle so that it, they could accommodate these things. Okay, let's go with our next true or false question. Are you ready, class? True or false, beans have lectins and therefore should be avoided. True or false? Oh my gosh, <laughs> the lectin issue. Oh, where do we start? So um, if, if, if people tell, like my husband tells me, you know, like you would be a millionaire if you just sold your, you sold your soul, like the lectin, the lectin paradox. Um, so um, that's not based on any scientific data. Um, most plants have, um, I think lectins to some amount, some have them in higher um, amounts than others. Um, and the truth is that, you know, these are plants way of protecting themselves out in nature, just like um, every living thing has ways of protecting itself. Um, the truth is that lectins, for example, in beans, beans have one of the highest levels of lectins. Um, it's cooked off in the cooking process and nobody's eating legumes uh, raw because first of all, it's going to come out the same way that it went in. And uh, <laughs> that's just not pleasurable to eat beans like that. So in the cooking processes, we are uh, cooking uh, lectins off and beans, for example, which have the highest levels of lectins are found to be the healthiest food in the planet. In fact, it's probably the number one um, perfect food, right? Because it has a lot of uh, complex carbohydrates. It has a ton of nutrients. It has prebiotics, which are food for our gut microbiome. And it has uh, the protein that we need to survive. So um, beans are, the perfect food has been associated with increased longevity, you know, in the blue zones, regions throughout the world and um it's just an incredibly healthy food healthy food and it's the number one lectin rich food so that just tells you right there um that this is not true we should not you know uh, stop consuming uh 
thinks I have lectins. Um, and the way, the reason why this person was able to and is able to get rich off of this uh, fad is because beans are the number one food where people have digestive issues uh, digesting them. So let's let's decipher why. Uh, let's dissect it. So um, I'm Cuban, so I grew up eating beans, right? So it's part of my diet from the beginning. But a lot of Western populations did not grow up like that. Um, it was Beans were not part of, of, of most Americans' diet, right? And a lot of European areas either. So um, when we go back to what we said about the gut microbiome, if you don't use it, you lose it. So if you were not brought up um, eating beans, then the microbes that are responsible for digesting beans were never fed. So then they went away. They either died off, uh, they decreased in numbers and species and diversity, and they went away. So when you eat beans, um, then you're gonna have issues digesting them. Why? Because the microbes are the ones responsible for digesting that fiber in beans. Um, so it's no surprise to me that um, he was able to capitalize on this uh, idea that people have problems digesting beans by demonizing beans and other lectin-rich foods that people have trouble digesting. But he's not solving any issue. He's not getting to the root cause. He's worsening actually the diversity in our foods and the diversity in our gut microbiome. It's hurting people more than helping them. How does he do that? By selling supplements to get rich. Um, so, um, so unfortunately, that's one of the biggest myths. And again, it's the same idea. So it's a, it's a food intolerance that people have. They get extremely bloated and uncomfortable. This is not everybody. These are the people that have trouble uh, digesting beans. They didn't grow up on it, or possibly, you know, they went through a bout of antibiotics and they wiped out some of the species responsible for digesting beans. So does that mean you have to avoid them forever? No, again, we have to go back to reintroducing them in a way that is tolerable for you. Um, so I have posts on this on social media. Um, with beans, you want to soak them. I recommend soaking them for at least 24 hours. Um, why? That breaks down a lot of the outer cover that is hard to digest. And then uh, pressure cooking them, for example, or, or, or using sprouted legumes, uh, sprouted beans that you can buy anywhere now. Um, those are all have higher digestibility. Um, lentils um, are a great way to start because uh, they don't have a rough outer covering and they're pretty easily digested. Um, and again, just soak them. Try them out in small amounts, a teaspoon at first, see how you feel. And then afterwards, um, uh, you can increase how much you're eating. Also, including spices, um, different spices, you know, like oregano and cumin when you're cooking these beans actually makes them a lot more digestible. Um, so, you know, there's tons of tips for patients and my husband is a prime example. My husband has inflammatory bowel disease. He was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when he was 17 years old. And we grew up, you know, uh, I've known him since I was a teenager. So he always had issues digesting beans because of his inflammatory bowel disease. And um, he would watch us eat them and he would suffer because he loved beans. And then, you know, in 2017, we went plant-based and my husband can eat a pot of beans. Like he has less symptoms than I do when eating beans. Like if I eat a pot of beans, I'm going to get 
pretty bloated and distended. Nobody should be eating a whole pot of beans, but um, he can eat it now. So, um, and that's why be the reason is because we, you know, we got him, uh, we optimized his gut microbiome basically, and now he can digest them. That is amazing to have somebody that had Crohn's and all these issues that you were able to get him deep beans. And for that reason alone, that's just awesome. And so people out there, if you're having trouble digesting beans, take those tips and or contact documentaries and you will find out that you can probably do this also. All right, we have one more true or false question. Okay, class, here we go. People with diverticulitis should never eat seeds. True or false? Please. Another huge myth. Um, so we actually have large-scale studies uh, showing that um, this is not true at all. In fact, um, high-fiber foods, including nuts, seeds, uh, grains, and things like popcorn, um, are actually protective of diverticulosis from developing diverticulosis. And once you do develop diverticulosis or have even had diverticulitis, studies show that um, people who did a low fiber diet actually progressed uh, to require a resection or had more complications from their diverticulitis, which is inflammation of those diverticula, more so than the high fiber group. The high fiber group was actually protective against complications from diverticulitis. So you know, um, what I recommend to patients is what I recommend to all people is that, you know, when you're going immediately through that diverticulitis process, um, I want you eating more um, bland things like starchy root vegetables because your colon is inflamed. Um, so things like smoothies and including all the uh, nuts and seeds in that blended process, it's pre-digested for you and it's broken down for you, but you're still getting all that fiber goodness that's feeding your gut microbiome. And smoothies now, you know, fall is coming. Starchy root vegetables are so gut healthy. Um, they have tons of prebiotics of feeding our gut microbiome. Um, so things like uh, butternut squash and pumpkin and, you know, potato leek soups, all these yummy comforting soups are great um, foods while you're going through that inflammation process. Now, once you're feeling better, when you to start reintroducing um, nuts and seeds whole, you know, um, do it slowly at first and then increment, increase them um, as you tolerate. You feel like um, a specific food really gives you reproducible symptoms every time you eat it, then that's something to discuss with your gastroenterologist. But otherwise, don't be scared because the data doesn't show that. It shows that high fiber foods, including popcorn, was tested. Um, and seeds um, are protective uh, from complications of diverticulitis. That shouldn't be a reason for you to be worried about adopting this lifestyle. It probably should be if you have diverticulitis, it probably should be a reason to adopt this lifestyle, but doing it in a way that may be different from the general population. You may have to adjust different things that you do, and Dr. Mendez could help you with that because it's a healing thing for the diverticulitis if they finally change over to a plant based lifestyle. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have tons of patients that they come to me after year, uh, years of, of suffering with diverticulosis, which is the little pockets, and having had multiple episodes of diverticulitis, which is the inflammation of the little pockets. Um, and they've avoided all these things that they loved, like they can't even enjoy a tomato without cutting out the seeds, you know, um, and then I put them and they still have ongoing symptoms every time food passes through the, that area that is a weakened bowel. 
Um, and I give them my spiel. They start reintroducing these foods and just the fiber content makes a gel, creates a gel-like substance around your stool so that the stool doesn't get stuck in these little pockets. That's the true inflammation. The true inflammation of diverticula comes from constipation or not enough fiber in your diet creating a gel-like substance. So what happens is the stool gets stuck in the little pockets, the little pockets get infected or they start to bleed. So when we have a high fiber diet, it creates that gel-like substance. It's like smooth. It's like jelly. Things are coming out like jelly. Um, so it's not affecting the, the pockets, not causing inflammation in them. So definitely um, talk to somebody who knows about this. And unfortunately, it goes, it all goes back. It's really frustrating for me because it all goes back to not having enough, you know, nutrition training or not being up to, uh, up to date with the data. Um, a lot of primary care doctors, unfortunately, are still saying these things. And a lot of older GI doctors are still saying these things, low fiber for diverticulitis. We debunked that more than 10 years ago with the data. It's been out for a long time. It's accessible to everybody um, that a high fiber diet protects against complications from diverticula. Yeah, it is a shame that that more gastroenterologists aren't on board with this and know about it. And there's just there's so much to learn. And it would really be nice if more of them could learn about that. I had a colonoscopy or checkup. Yeah, that was what we recommended. And now mm -hmm. I've been plant based since 2012. And my gastroenterologist I mean, I don't have a gastroenterologist, but I, the <laughs> person that did the procedure. Yeah, absolutely. First screening, and, yeah. yeah. And so he showed me the pictures and, and everything was pink and beautiful. Beautiful. And he said, your colon is like that of a 23-year-old. Yeah. And he also said that I only see this in two populations. And one is people, uh, first-generation Asian. And then I also see it with people who, well, he said vegan. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah. but yet he doesn't have anything in his practice where he promotes his lifestyle. I don't know if he's putting the two things together. Or, or, I know <laughs> it's such a, it, you know, it's so unfortunate. It's so unfortunate that again, it's missing that whole body picture, that integrative approach and seeing the person as a whole, um, not putting their lifestyle with their disease, uh, you know, disease prevention or diseases together. Um, and I'm glad, I'm so glad you said that, Amy. I'm so glad that you said that you got a screening colonoscopy because the truth is, while we can do everything in our power and really optimize our health with our lifestyle and a plant-based nutrition or plant-forward nutrition, um, we're not we're not disease-proof. Okay, there's many things that we don't know about disease, including environmental factors. Okay. Um, there's a lot of environmental toxins that we just don't have enough data, you know, things that are surrounding us right now, um, fumes coming off our the, the paint in our walls and our couches. This, this, there is emerging data that this does disrupt our gut microbiome. It does disrupt our health. And environmental factors are now one of the, are becoming one of the leading causes of, of certain diseases, you know, just like we know nutrition is one of the leading causes of other diseases. So, um, you know, just because we follow a plant-based diet doesn't mean that we're disease proof and we really need to be healthy. Uh, we need to take all that science provides to us, just like we're thankful that all these emerging studies are showing the power of 
a high fiber diet um, and use that to uh, to promote this lifestyle that we know is best for the planet, for the animals and for ourselves. We also have to use science uh, in its totality, right? We can't cherry pick. We have to say like if science says that you can prevent colon cancer, colon cancer is the only cancer that is really preventable with a procedure. Why? I still have plant-based patients that have had, I, I, I took out a, uh, a cancer in a 40 year old um, patient that was plant-based and it was a polyp that had converted into a cancer and it was localized and I was able to resect it out with a colonoscopy. So colonoscopies do save lives. And, um, you know, it, we now have data that uh, we are finding advanced cancers in younger than 50 year olds. So that's why our guidelines recently changed um, to 45 and up getting screening colonoscopy. And, it, you know, like if your colon is clean, you don't have any polyps, you're not going to need another one for 10 years. This is a 15 minute procedure. We do colonoscopies in 15 minutes and nothing um, replaces a colonoscopy because it's direct visualization inside your bowel. Um, and, and we, if we find a polyp, we remove it right there and then, and we prevent colon cancer right there and then. Uh, you don't have to go to a surgery or anything like that. Then you can get home, go home, and you can uh, enjoy the rest of the day off. So it really does save lives. So I recommend that people um, get all their screening done, really do everything they can to optimize their health, not just with you know nutrition and lifestyle, but with what science has available for us. Yeah, and that's why I think it's so great that you practice lifestyle medicine where you don't just think about plant-based lifestyle and, and meditation and things like that because, of course, those are wonderful ways to improve your health. But we, like you said, we're not bulletproof. And sometimes you do need a medical procedure or even a medication yep. if it's called for. But in your practice, it seems that you try to avoid those things mm -hmm. and use the lifestyle as a first line of defense. Absolutely. So I think people get the best of both worlds yeah. and they don't have to worry about something being skipped over. So that, that's really wonderful. So it looks like we have some questions. So we're going to go for one of our questions now. Kathy Cook. Hi, Kathy. I know Kathy. She wanted to know what spice other than oregano did you suggest to use with beans? I said cumin, but honestly, there are so many spices that are incredibly gut healthy. I have several of these, uh, I think on my, you know, on my social media, on my Instagram, I also have it on an ebook um, that's available on my website. Um, but uh, there's many different herbs and spices that are incredibly gut healthy for um, not only remember, gut, uh, spices and herbs actually count as a plant point. So um, we didn't mention this, but studies show that 30 plus uh, plants per week is associated with imp increased microbiome diversity. Microbiome diversity is exactly what we want because all of us have good microbes and all of us have bad microbes. And it's actually not black and white like that. Um, we say it like, like that, but it's not black and white like that. Under certain, certain circumstances, the bad microbes, the pro-inflammatory ones, can actually do crucial fundamental functions in our body. Um, and same way the other way around. Um, beneficial microbes under the wrong conditions for not optimizing our health can actually um, turn pro-inflammatory or have pro-inflammatory actions in our body or be detrimental to our health. So not black and white, but studies do show that 30 plus plant, um, uh, plants per week, different plants, 30 plus 
um, different plants per week is associated with increased microbiome diversity. And that's what we want. We want more diverse microbes because the more diversity of microbes are uh, we have, the more functions that they're fulfilling. And the microbiome has a, the, the number of functions that they do is just, it's a very long list. First of all, it's over 10 different crucial functions in our body. Regulation of our immune system, obviously regulation of our digestive health. They play a crucial role in metabolism and fat deposition in our body. They uh, communicate with the brain. In fact, microbiome um, byproducts, things that they, the microbes create when we feed them fiber can travel up to the brain and, cr and cross the blood-brain barrier. Not many things can do that. Glucose is only the only ones that can do that and several other um, substances, but not many things from the body can cross that blood-brain barrier for protection of our brain. So the list goes on and on and on. Um, and we said immune regulation, but the microbiome plays a huge role, especially in that priming process in the early formative years of our lives. Um, our gut microbiome matures by the time we're three years old. Some, that's crazy, right? Mature microbiome by the time we're three years old. Some studies suggest that in certain populations, it may be delayed by 11 years, like by the time you're 11 is when it matures. But in most people, it matures really early on. So um, the more plants, uh, different plants that we feed the gut microbiome, the more that we are feeding those crucial microbes um, to do all these jobs. So herbs and spices count as plant points. So, um, you know, using them and learning how to use them and playing around with herbs and spices is fun. You know, for me, I grew up eating tons of herbs and spices. And now as I've grown, now I get to venture out into, you know, different cuisines and their herbs and spices, more Indian, more Asian cuisines, things like that. So play around with it. Um, look in my social media if you want to learn uh, what, which other ones I recommend. But really, all these herbs and spices, they serve a function in our body. Yeah, it's so amazing that Deborah said plant points. I like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that's a really great way to think about it. Every every meal is an opportunity to gain the plant points. And I think about sometimes if I have a salad or if I have a stir fry and I sprinkle in Italian blend, there's more than one spice in there. I mean, every time I sprinkle something in, I guess I'm getting plant points. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And other ones that are really great for um, gut health are ginger and um, turmeric. Okay, so ginger and turmeric in any variation, I recommend people um, take the roots, like the actual root, um, and you know, you peel it or you don't have to peel it, put it into your smoothies. So that is a great way to get them in. But also in, you know, the dried ginger, um, or the dried turmeric can be used for a whole host of of different um, recipes. I have several, I've actually have several recipes, tons of recipes on my social media uh, using turmeric. So that's another great. Yeah. I, in the beginning, in, when I started this lifestyle, I would peel the beet, I would peel the turmeric <laughs> and the ginger. And now it just all goes in the blender. And I don't even, I don't know the difference. And I, I think that probably you get a lot of nutrients on those peels because I can't imagine people in the stone age were peeling. 
Absolutely. <laughs> and you know what? Those are plants are live foods. So, you know, we talked about probiotic supplements, but we didn't talk about probiotic foods. So plants are living foods. And yeah, unless you're like really cleaning or bleaching your plants, which I don't recommend, <laughs> like bleaching your plants, but you're still getting live microbes in your foods. So that counts as probiotic foods. Um, so there are live cultures in living foods, plants, fruits, vegetables, you know, um, uh, and so there you have already life cultures. But also if you wanted to um, optimize your gut health a little bit, you can um, try out probiotic foods. You know, there's tons of plant-based uh, probiotic foods that are great for gut health um, and that help uh, uh, increase our gut microbiome diversity. And, you know, so um, things like uh, tempeh, if you don't, you know, if you don't heat it a high heat, um, tempeh, which is fermented soybeans, um, Japanese have nato or natto. Um, we have, you know, uh, coconut or water kefir that we can use. Um, so non-dairy kefirs you could use. Um, we have sauerkraut, we have kimchi, just make sure that it says, you know, probiotic on it. Um, and, um, those are the ones that come to miso, obviously miso paste. Again, don't overheat it. Miso paste is a must. Uh, I think it's so versatile. And it's a great probiotic food uh, to use in your recipes instead of salt. Uh, you can use, obviously, in miso soup and so many uh, different recipes. And it's just a great, it's, I would just Google miso soup, I mean, miso recipes, you know, and then you'll get a whole host of how, uh, how to use miso paste in, in your foods. So playing around and having fun with that. It's good. Yeah. I mean, since adapting this lifestyle, I thought that I was giving up foods, but actually I just keep adding foods and experiencing new things. And it's just wonderful. Like you said, you just, there's so many things out there that we may never have been exposed to, and now we can be. All right, let's try another question. Deborah said, my son was just diagnosed with GERD and was given a prescription and a list of foods to avoid. What advice can I give him? So this is very typical. This is uh, that advice that your son got is unfortunately uh, what I see every, you know, every patient uh, previously be, uh, be told. Um, so the, re the question is, why is he having GERD? Um, you know, again, getting to that root cause, did he gain weight, um, recently, you know, most of us have gained weight during the pandemic. This is just a very trying time for all of us. Um, gain, uh, weight gain is one of the most common reasons to develop GERD. Um, does he have high stress right now? Um, you know, how are his stress levels? Um, so all of these are reasons for developing GERD. Did he develop GERD? How was that diagnosed? Did they do an upper endoscopy? Did they rule out other causes of his symptoms? And then the answer is not avoiding food because these are just food triggers that doesn't actually solve the underlying issue. And yes, medication can help him. And there should, there's no shame in using medication. If he's in distress, he needs that medication, right? Um, but simultaneously you should be getting to the root cause of why is he having these symptoms um why is this happening now and how we can how can we optimize his you know nutrition and lifestyle to get him back to healing um so you know how is his diet um 
So there's a lot of different things um, that are at play when it comes to digestive disorders. And yeah, the easiest thing for any doctor to do is say, okay, here's a prescription and avoid these foods because that's kind of like what most of them have been trained to do. But that's not going to give him a long-lasting healing or solution or even answers to why he has this now. Yeah, that's very interesting. But of course, there probably are some standard American diet foods that everybody should avoid. So no, so actually the foods that they tell them to avoid is um, caffeine, for example, and even like green tea, which is incredibly healthy, they'll tell them to avoid. Coffee is healthy. Coffee is healthy. If it's one of his food triggers and he can avoid it, then yes, avoid it because it's worsening your symptoms and worsening your quality of life. But coffee inherently is healthy. So other things are like high citrus fruit. So none of the GERD, um, most of these generic uh, uh, food avoidance for GERD uh, recommendations or food restrictions are actually plant-based foods. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it's really funny because that's, those are food triggers, but that's actually not causing your GERD. So you're right. I'm glad that you brought that up, Amy, um, because high fat foods does worsen GERD. Um, you know, um, highly processed foods worsens GERD. Um, so that's what I see. And that's what I counsel my patients to avoid. But all the other ones like citrus and, and you know, coffee or green tea and, and natural uh, caffeinated things um, only avoid if it's a, if it's a trigger for him, but just don't blanketly just avoid them just because, you know, <laughs> a doctor told you so, unless it's actually worsening your symptoms. Um, so yeah, in these food recommendations for GERD, they don't include uh, high fat or processed foods, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, yeah it's all backwards. Right. It's really, really That's, sad. Those bad food choices are not on yeah, the Yeah, I love how you thought it was that. And for me, yes, absolutely. That's that's exactly what I tell patients. But unfortunately, that's not the reality. Right. And, yeah. and at such a young age, it really would be very beneficial if somebody like that could have a consult with you because you could probably very get to get to the bottom of it and really yeah, it yeah, and, yeah. and then change their whole life ahead instead of being on medications and then also perhaps having procedures in the future because it wasn't resolved when you could absolutely cause of it. Okay, let's go with our next question. Cindy, please ask Dr. Mendez how stevia affects insulin production in the pancreas and the microbiome. Can she comment also on bloating? Thank you. That's a good Mm -hmm. one, Cindy. Um, So stevia, you know, um, I consider stevia like any artificial sweeteners, um, even though it comes from a plant. Yeah, most artificial sweeteners, medication supplements came from a plant. Um, Does that mean that they're all safe? No, we need to be wise consumers. Um, So um, I don't actually recommend stevia. Some studies show, and I don't recommend artificial sweeteners. So other artificial sweeteners, not stevia, cause a lot of bloating. They cause a lot of, because they're not absorbed in the body. So they are taken to the gut and then the microbes ferment it and cause a lot of bloating um, and even diarrhea in some people. So the number one thing when somebody has bloating and diarrhea is I eliminate all dairy and artificial sweeteners. And artificial sweeteners are in a lot of processed um, foods. They're in a lot of these flavored drinks. If it says, um, if it says uh, sugar-free, it, it's going to have a, an artificial sweetener. So um, artificial sweeteners have been shown to actually 
because the number one source of energy for your brain is glucose. When you consume an artificial sweetener, you're telling your brain, I'm not getting my energy. So the brain is going to send signals to the body of hunger and it's going to ask for more food. So uh, that's why diet drinks and artificial sweeteners and anything from tea to whatever actually promotes more, you know, unhealthy uh, eating behaviors um, and uh, can actually lead to more weight gain. Um, digestively specifically, it causes bloating and diarrhea in, in many people. Um, so I don't recommend using them ever. And it's also been associated with microbiome changes. Stevia is a little bit different. I still don't recommend this. Some studies do show microbiome changes. Um, I, I am a fan of going back to the old days. Let's use natural sweeteners. You know, um, I don't mind even in diabetic patients, you know, using things like date paste. Date paste would be the most, the and you can make this yourself with dates, um, very easily in a home. Um, but they paste is, you know, a complete, it's a whole food. Um, so that would be my go-to, but things like that, you know, you can't have any grainy stuff in it. I am, I don't mind you using a little bit of maple syrup and I even don't mind using a little bit of brown sugar. As long as you're not having, you know, like half a cup of brown sugar, a tablespoon here or there of maple syrup or, or brown sugar is not going to break your health by any means. Um, so I'd rather patients use that than artificial sweeteners. It's just not, we don't, the data we have doesn't look great and we don't have long-term data of like 20 years or anything like that. The other question was about the insulin. Um, well, artificial sweeteners are not going to stimulate the pancreas to create, you know, insulin because it's not sugar, so they don't act on the pancreas. Yeah, it's, that's just so important to talk about. Yeah, let's eat whole foods, you know, like, right. you know, and some people use honey. So if, you know, if you're not vegan and you use honey here and there, that's another option for, for sweetener. I mean, the bees will suffer and, you know, our world needs bees, but, um, but you have other options like maple syrup and date paste and agave. I don't love it. It does cause bloating in some patients, but you can also try it. Yeah, I love, I sweeten things with dates and date paste. I love Yeah, that. me too. Yeah. Yeah. Think about how, uh, in the United States anyway, there's so many foods that are out there. What the FDA does, as far as allowing things, they have this terminology called generally considered as safe. So mm -hmm. they allow all these things into our food supply. And as long as nobody proved that it wasn't safe, then it goes out there. And then when somebody comes along and says, you know what, that's not safe, then they take it off the market or they recall it. But I mean, yeah, you're right. And the burden is on somebody to prove that it's not safe. Uh, going to that point, I, I, and, I, and I completely agree. And as long as we're primarily eating whole foods, then we are uh, ha avoiding having to deal with that. Um, the other issue that affects gut, gut health tremendously is emulsifiers. Emulsifiers are binders um, found in processed foods, even in nut butter. So um, anything that comes packaged, I always recommend that you read the food labels and just make sure you know exactly what you're putting in your body. So peanut, like if you're going to buy peanut butter or almond butter or any seed butter, um, the ingredients should just be that nut or seed and water. <laughs> it shouldn't be anything else and maybe a little bit of sea salt if you want but not even um it shouldn't be anything else but a lot of the commercial uh, nut butters and seed butters uh jiffy and uh, i don't even know um because i haven't bought those in many years have emulsifiers so they're binders 
that keep these foods on the shelf longer and they bind oil and, and water. So um, emulsifiers have been linked to gut microbiome uh, imbalances. Uh, they've been linked to um, things like um, um, increased intestinal permeability, which is layman's term is leaky gut. And, uh, you know, we, that's only scratching at the surface of what they could possibly uh, do in terms of health. So um, when we are buying processed foods, we're not just getting the food, you know, we're getting fat, we're getting refined sugar, we're getting tons of food additives that or in food colorants that we don't know what the long term effects are, and have been shown to possibly, you know, be harmful for health, even be possibly neuro, uh, neurologically affect children. Um, so, you know, like, there was a study the other day about uh, food coloring um, being possibly one of the triggers in ADHD and other neurological disorders in children. So as long as we're primarily, you know, eating whole foods, we don't have to deal with that. So it's like, it's perfect because then I don't have to be freaking out all the time about reading food labels. Um, obviously, we live in a modern world. We're all going to eat an amount of processed foods, but it's about being wise consumers, knowing, you know, navigating which processed foods may be better. Um, you know, not all processed foods are created the same. There's minimally processed, there's processed or ultra processed. So things like that. And also reading those labels to make sure that we're not getting things that we don't we don't want in them. We're all going to consume some amount of processed foods at one point or another or possibly daily. But as long as overwhelmingly we're eating whole plant foods, then we are really optimizing our health. It's such great information, guys. I hope you're all taking notes and, and maybe I think I'm going to have to watch this again because it's just so much good information for all of us. I wanted to give you, well, first of all, I want to tell everybody Dr. Mendez is available for telehealth and I want to give Dr. Mendez an opportunity to tell us about that. And I'm going to do a little drum roll because she's going to be revealing some new information about her practice. I think that this might be the first time that it's out in the world. So see you guys, you stay tuned and you get to hear some first really hot off the press information. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I do see patients physically in my practice. I work at a hospital in Indiana, even though I'm Florida based, I travel back and forth. But I do see patients virtually through my own practice. And my own practice, that's where the exciting news is coming, is actually now transforming into a telemedicine um, specialist-based practice with other plant-based um, practitioners. Our group is called Planted Forward. Planted, like planted, <laughs> like you're rooted. Plantedforward.com. And there you, they have the, the name. Perfect. Right now, we are going to be doing our launch in the coming 30 to 60 days. It's already live and you can book with me. We're going to be doing our launch. And if you navigate our website, you're going to see that we have a plant-based cardiologist, Dr. Nicole Harkin. We have the company was started with me and Dr. Melissa Mandala, who's primary care and psychology. Um, so she does family medicine, so she can see anybody from kids to adults. And um, we have two registered dietitians um, that are plant-based and we have a health coach. 
Um, what's special and unique about our practice is the, this is the only um, specialist plant-based practice. Um, we're also integrative. So that approach that I mentioned to you guys about, you know, taking evidence-based information from all of healthcare, right? Eastern, Western practices, traditional medicine and alternative medicine and treating the patient as a whole, um, whole body, mind and soul is how we all practice. So we all have that in, in common. And I'm really excited um, to be working alongside this team. So it's a baby yet, or it's a baby, but we'll be doing our launch uh, soon. And I hope you guys join us and subscribe to our page uh, so you can follow along with us. That is just so exciting. So often people are saying, I wish I could find somebody that I could do telemedicine with that just had to specialize something. Jesse T said, congratulations. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this. Thank you. Lynn says, everybody's getting very excited. Oh, thank you so much, and guys. it's so okay. great because they could, even though it's not actually happening right now, they can still go to the website that we told them about. Plant for yeah, you can go. Go ahead. You can go, you can book with me already, and you can uh, subscribe to follow along with us. Our subscribers will get, I don't think that's active right now, but we'll, we'll be getting your first email in the next 30 to 60 days with an ebook, um, with recipes and, and information about our practice. And yeah, we're just really, really excited because it's been, it's been a year in the making and uh we're just we're excited about this so wonderful because especially people who have digestive issues they need some hand holding and it's not just maybe one time that they need to talk to somebody although that could even just make it happen one, one exactly that could be it but sometimes they're like oh what about this what about that and they want to talk again and it's just so difficult to find a plant-based gastroenterologist and then also you have the registered dietitian so yeah really great. and a plant-based cardiologist which plant you know there's not um, we don't have a lot of plant-based cardiologists that, that take patients on, on telemedicine. And the beauty about this is that, it, you know, we see patients internationally. I've been uh, through my own practice, which has morphed into this, been seeing patients um, internationally. So I get patients from Europe, from Canada, um, from Mexico. And uh, um, in the country, I think most of us are licensed in Florida, California, and I'm licensed in New York as well. Cardiologist is licensed in New York as well. So those three um, starting off and we will expand our, our states. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be growing. Monarch Amis does their telemedicine practice in, in Canada. I, I see patients in Canada. I see them often mm -hmm. because... Canada, you know, um, and we can talk a little bit about this. Canada has great preventative care, I think. And, and you know, just by looking at their food pyramid, it, it really does. It's it's more progressive than ours. <laughs> um, but when it comes to specialty care, um, it's, um, you know, because they, they're hyper-focused on primary care, preventative care, which really are, the U.S. should be too, um, they are lacking in specialists. So specialists have a long wait list. There's not a lot of um, digestive disease specialists, especially, you know, all digestive disorders, but also inflammatory bowel disease, which is my special uh, specialty. Um, so I see a lot of patients from Canada for digestive disorders. So yes, uh, you could book with us. Um, and you're bilingual, right? You're bilingual? Yes, right. So I see, uh, I'm Cuban. I was born in Cuba. So I see a lot of patients um, from Mexico and other Latin American countries. Yeah. 
That's wonderful. And you're just going to grow from there. So I'm really excited. We're glad that our plant-based fans out there are going to have some support if they want to. Yeah, and more options. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I really want to thank you, Dr. Mendez, for your time. I would love to have you back because there's just so many things and, and I don't even know how you keep track of it all in your brain because there's just so much information and the new information coming out with new studies all the time to help people heal with this plant-based lifestyle, but not just what they're eating, but also there are other things that you, as lifestyle medicine doctor, you talk about as far as sleep and stress. Absolutely. And it's just a lot of things and we didn't even get to talk about that. I know. But I do, I really want to thank you for your time. I also wanted to thank somebody in the background who's been helping me a lot and that's Rebecca from PKA Solves and she's been engineering our whole broadcast and bringing up questions so that your questions could be seen by Dr. Mendez. Hi, Rebecca. And I want to thank Jess Tass from Jess Tass Voice. She did the countdown and the voiceover for the introduction. And guess what? She's also, Jess Tass Voice is going to tell us Who's coming up next? Lori Marbus, MD, MBA, is a double board certified family medicine and lifestyle medicine physician. Bring your medical questions for Dr. Marbus on Monday, September 27th, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Be Green with Amy, live. Well, thank you all for being here, especially all of you that have tuned in to watch and you're liking and you're subscribing and you're sharing and getting the word out. We want to help you and we want to help you help other people by sharing this information with people. And we are glad to be here. And Dr. Mendez wanted to be here just for you. So thank you for coming. Dr. Mendez is going to sign off with me now with my tagline. And you guys can type it in too, okay? Remember, be strong, be well, and be green. And here comes Dr. Mendez. Thanks again, Dr. Mendez. Until I see all of you again, remember, be strong, be well, and be green. green. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.